Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll, we'll shift gears here. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thank you for uh, just being a part of a community that allows for questions, allows for us to um, seek you out in ways that are, are fresh and new. And I uh, thank you for each of the individuals in this room that make up a collective group that we call community and that we call journey. And Lord, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, that clarity would be um, in the forefront of this conversation. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the uh, series Cross-Shaped Life. We are in the book of Mark. And I just want to remind you of a couple of things. This is a quick review that, that the book of Mark is divided into three sections. The first section is all around Galilee in the beginning of Jesus's ministry. It starts in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the calling of his disciples. And then it goes to the transition time. The transition time is when they move towards Jerusalem. It's the journey down to Jerusalem. And we, were, we had spent the last several uh, weeks in that part of the story where the disciples just have a hard time grasping that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. And then you're in Jerusalem. Last week, Mike uh, spoke on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem with the waving of palms. He did a big history lesson on Maccabees. Anybody here for that? All right. Six of you. That's great. Well, I'm picking up on that spot, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 and 12. And one of the things that I just want to quickly review is that over this series of, of Mark, where we get to this point, is the religious leaders, this is going to be all about the religious leaders of the day. This is going to be about the Pharisees. It's going to be about the Sadducees. It's going to be about the Herodians. And this conversation, they've, they've ongoingly throughout this book have said, We've got to figure out a way to get rid of this guy. We've got, to, we've got to find a way to kill him. And this has been the recurring theory. And, and so this week, um, in chapter 12, we get a closer look at how deliberate they are in getting this done. And so with that, I want to read a paragraph from Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 27 to 33, before we dive into chapter 12. And... and it kind of sets us up for what we're about to read in chapter 12. So chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. They arrived again in Jerusalem. Again, it's the, everything's now this week. This is, he's done his triumphal entry. They are spending the week there. They're, all kinds of things happen this week, and it leads to the cross. But they arrived again in Jerusalem, him and his disciples. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Okay, so just fill in the blank. They're asking, by what authority did you shut the temple down when he flipped the tables over? So if you were here last week, Mike went into that with great detail. But that, that moment basically shut down the temple. And now these guys are coming to him and saying, who said you could do that? And by whose authority are you operating? So Jesus is great. He asked him a question back. 
Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or, hu or of human origin? Tell me. So they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is the problem. This sets us up with the problem. They be, the, the religious leaders of the day had this deep-seated fear of the crowds, of the people. And it motivates them in how they approach Jesus and how these next few days play out. If you recall, when he comes into this, the city of Jerusalem, it's, it's full-on, this is the... Um, deliverer, he's the Messiah, they're worshiping him with palms, they, but they're thinking, the crowds are thinking, they're going to be delivered from their oppressors, the Romans, and that Jesus is going to be that guy. I know that's review, but I just want to make sure you know that. And they were fully in the camp of Jesus, the crowds were. And this is, you'll find, as this plays out up until his crucifixion, this fear of the crowds is why a lot of the stuff that you see happen right around his death is done in secret. They don't arrest him in public. They arrest him in a private place. But they didn't know where he was going to be in his private places, so they needed the guy, Judas, to show him the way. And so you find that their fear drives how the whole thing plays out. And this is how this plays out now, is that their fear of the crowds make it difficult for them to fully do what they want to do. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. They want him out of the way. And so what ends up happening is this chapter plays out. It's an interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. But he begins with this great parable. And uh, this parable is speaking directly to the religious leaders of the day. And so beginning in chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, it says this. He says, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Just, I'm going to work through this a little bit, but God builds the vineyard. It's God's temple. It's God's place. It's God's, um, and he puts people in charge of it. He rents it out to them. Some farmers religious leaders. So the religious leaders are now the caretakers of God's vineyard, God's people. Got it? At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. But they seized him, uh, yeah, then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent in still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Most of these, these are the prophets. He's talking about the prophets that were sent to, to, to the leaders of the day. And then, in verse 6, he had left to send, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. Sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. 
So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asked. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then the, the story shifts or the, the parable actually ends there and there's another parable that comes right on the heels of that. And in verse 10, it says, haven't you read the, this passage of scripture? Psalm 118 and 22 through 23 is this passage. We shift the shift is from agriculture to architecture. The stone, built, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The builders reject the one that God chooses. So the cornerstone obviously being Jesus, and that it was supposed to be built on that, but the leaders of the day, the people of the day, reject the cornerstone, the builders. Then the chief priests, the teachers, this is, this is how they respond. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders look for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So Jesus is actually answering the question by whose authority he's doing what he's doing. He, in one breath, he said, I'm not going to tell you. But then in this parable, he explains, I'm doing this based upon the Father. And so we begin, we begin to get a peek into this relationship between the, the religious leaders of the day and Jesus. And this plays out here in the next few verses. But their goal now ramps up because now we're in Jerusalem. Now there's, there's, the crowds are big. They don't know what else to do. He keeps speaking against them. And the religious leaders of the day. Now, here's, here's one of the questions that I wrestle with when I read this. And, I, and just as a... A casual reading of it, but also as a, I don't fully grasp all the time the significance of these leaders. The leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, we're going to be introduced to the Herodians here, um, the uh, scribes, the teachers of the law, the elders, all these, these were the people that the Israelites were taught to respect, to follow. They got their uh, religious teaching from them. They also were intertwined with the government. So there was, this was the authorities of the day. These were the people of great importance. These were the people that everyone else thought had favor with God. And I think I've, I've read these stories so many times. There are times when I just forget how influential these people were, how platformed they were. In our culture, it would be the, the influencers of the day. And coupled with a political agenda and a religious agenda, and all of those things are coming into play as Jesus now steps onto this platform, into this space, into this space where now the crowds are adoring him and following him. He becomes an immediate threat. He becomes someone that's problematic because he doesn't align with any of them, and he doesn't want to. And so there's this this big question that hangs over the religious leaders of the day. What are you going to do with this Jesus? And we know what they do, because we know how this ends. But this moment, this chapter 12, there's this, this sweeping conversation that takes place with Jesus and the leaders of the day. And keep this in mind, that they are trying to figure it out, and they say it as much, starting in verse 13. He says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Okay, the, there's, these people 
are on different spectrums of the political um, uh, ideology. The Herodians have made their peace, or they are Jewish people that have joined up with Herod, leaders of the um, local government that the Romans have put in place. So the Herodians are really traitors to the Jewish people. And the Pharisees are on the other end of the spectrum where they are the keepers of the law and they abhor the idea that the Romans have any power at all. And so they have totally different motives and they are normally enemies. Pharisees and Herodians do not get along. They don't eat together. They don't socialize together. But in this case, in this moment, they have a mutual enemy. And his name is Jesus. And so they come together to ask a question. And this is a very common verse. You've, you hear it quoted by people who, um, uh, in all kinds of contexts, they're just way out of context. But verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, now these people don't like each other, and they don't like Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Think about that for just a minute. They're patronizing God. They're flattering someone that they want to kill. I just, it, the gall of these guys is amazing. But there's the question, right? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it? Or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus, says, Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Okay. It's a verse we've heard probably countless times. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Give unto God what is God's. What leads into this is interesting. Jesus said, give me a denarius. And what was on the coin of the, of the denarius is, a, is an image of the emperor, Caesar. And he looks at it, and he goes, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, his image, his coin, his this belongs to him. It's of this system, of this world that you live in. Render unto him what is his. And then he says, but render unto God what is God's. Now, why would they do this? Why, what is the trap? The trap is, the difference between the Herodians and the Pharisees is, if we could just get him to say one or the other, we win. Because if he says, pay the tax, the people will revolt against him because they are under the oppression of the Roman government and they're like, this is wrong, this is terrible, and he's siding with our oppressors. Or if he says, don't pay it, now he's got a problem with the Romans because the Romans are gonna say he's an insurrectionist. And if he's an insurrectionist, now we've got him because now we can go to the Romans and say he said not to pay the tax. And so now he's, we've got him. We've got him on the horns of this dilemma. And the Herodians didn't win, 
and the Pharisees didn't win, they actually get embarrassed. There's the picture here of him walking away from this conversation, but vindicated, because they're amazed at his answer. And the other people walk away defeated. Again, this is a, a series of conversations that he has. But the, the other thing I want to make a point of is, when he says, render unto God what is God's, give unto God, he's speaking to the same idea, the image of God imprinted in each human being. So when we, we question this, well, what did he mean? He meant all people belong to God. God made people in his image. And so it is to give over to God that which belongs to him, which is you, which is the people. And this, this is the ongoing tension between him and the leaders. The ongoing tension is, yeah, but people, the people that were to shepherd and look over the people of Israel have been doing a terrible job of it. And when the, when the uh, fathers send somebody for the fruit of the vineyard that he planted, the fruit of the vineyard is the people. And the, and the farmers are saying, you can't have the people. You can't have them. So when Jesus dies for the people, Again, what's in play here is not money, it's not power, it's not prestige, it's people. That's the theme through here. And so when he says, render under Caesar, give him his coin, give him his money. His reward is in that, that's all he gets. But give God what belongs to God. Give him the people because they belong to him. That's such a huge contrast, but such great truth. For us, it's an, it's, this is the ultimate invitation to weigh in on the culture war, right? Jesus could weigh in. This is a culture war that's taking place. The Herodians and the Pharisees are on either side of that. And Jesus could weigh in on either side. And he chooses to weigh on on neither side. Because it's not about the culture war. It's about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is so different from the way that this group of people operate and the way that the Roman government operates and the way right now that the temple is operating. That's why Jesus flipped the tables, brought it to a close. See, I think, I think this is the part too where I find myself um, in the story. If you find yourself anywhere in this story, this is the hard part with some of this is because, well, he's talking about, you know, Herodians and Pharisees and religious leaders and, and uh, am I just a, a people watching? Am I a disciple on the sideline? What am I in this story? And I, I find myself oftentimes being in the wrong seat, being in the seat of one of the Pharisees or the Herodians or the Sadducees or, and asking the, the wrong question, siding with the wrong people. And there's this repentance piece that comes if, if somebody said to me, if God showed up and said, here's the parable, and the parable is, is that you guys are killing my servants and you're going to kill my son and da-da-da-da-da, and I'm on the wrong side of that, my natural tendency, if I realized that, would be to be go, ooh, I need to get on the right side of this. I need to repent. I need to join with Jesus. They just keep doubling down on their side, which is really uncomfortable. 
which sometimes I do that. So we find ourselves contrasting these two kingdoms from a simple statement. Takes a coin, sees the image of Caesar, render it to Caesar. But render unto God what belongs to God. The image of God in man is render people unto God. It's the different currencies of the different kingdoms. It's what's most valuable in each of the kingdoms. Money is the most valuable part of the worldly kingdom. and People are the most valuable commodity of the, and I'm using that word, not as objective, but as a contrast to money. We oftentimes just confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world. Well, then we move on to this conversation. We move from the Pharisees and Sadducees, or Pharisees and the Herodians to the Sadducees. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Okay, that gives you a clue as this, this is going to play out. This is a question of theology. This is a question of how does this play out with God? Not necessarily is it a, uh, a monetary or a, it's a different question. So this question has to do with theology. They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They're telling Jesus the law. This is the rules. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Who comes up with these questions? <laughs> Who sat down and said, let's go with seven? And the odds of this happening, right? No children. And so the idea here is to catch him in some kind of misstep about theology. Is do you understand? Because the irony of this is, and they tell us up front the irony, the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection, so what did it matter to them? They didn't even believe what they were asking, let alone how... Ridiculous it sounds. So Jesus replies, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? He's talking to religious leaders of the day. And he asks them a question about uh, just a total misunderstanding of two things, who God is and what the scriptures say. That's like the ultimate indictment of religious leaders. You don't know who God is, and you don't know what he says. When the dead rise, Jesus continues, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead, he's not saying that we will be bodiless when he says that. Somebody asked me that after the first service. Is What he's, what he's saying is, is we will, um, the angels don't marry, or are they gender-driven, whereas humans are. And so there's, we will, they will be like the angels. So there will no longer be marrying and people. Okay, got it. All right. Beat that. Now, about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush? Now, he's being somewhat 
um, sarcastic, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. He calls them out. He doesn't just kind of call them out. He's like, Do you, didn't you read your Bible? Didn't you go to Sunday school? Didn't you learn this when you were a child? Because they did. They know exactly what he's talking about, yet they deny the resurrection. And he's calling out their bad theology. He's calling out their, their, they don't know who God is if they think that God is the God of the dead. It actually is calling out their folly. I believe this is one of the great challenges that faces you in the church today, us, me. As we go through a season of who do we believe about what they teach? They were leading people. They were teaching people that the resurrection wasn't real, that God, God wasn't really a God of the living. And what do we find? We find we live in a culture where oftentimes authority is abused by the way theology is taught. How many of you are on social media? Okay, five, all right. I am, unfortunately, I admit this. I'm on Twitter, um, and I have a Facebook page that I never visit, so don't ever send me anything there. Um, it does send me notifications, and I just, sorry. But um, Twitter has fascinated me because it is the ultimate place to gaslight people. Um, if you're not on Twitter, don't go there. Um, it, is, it is one of the most cruel environments that I, that I observe the behavior of people who can be anonymous and how people can, in, in three sentences or two sentences or three words, destroy other people. It is one of the most, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good word, ungodly places to hang out. And you know, I want to know who are some of the worst people on there? Other pastors. And what they do to other pastors on there. I don't, I don't ever, I don't ever post. I'm kind of like this word, this observer from a distance. And it's, it's, it's just struck me over and over again, and it hurts it, it, what we do to each other in those environments. And they accuse each other of bad theology, and they accuse of it. It's just it's crazy. And as you watch it, you see people's reputations destroyed, and you see all kinds of things. And, and, and partly the reason I, I'm on there is, is um, I want to be aware of where we're going culturally. And Twitter gives us a little bit of a picture of where we're going culturally. I think Facebook does too. Um, I think also, you're gonna, you probably not like this statement, um, is I think as, as we talk about the crowds in this passage, that's kind of the crowd too. It's the crowd that listens and hears and joins into whatever's happening that is to their benefit. And it's how we end up with a crucifixion at the end of the week. It's how we end up with Jesus on a cross, is that the crowds shift from being pro-Jesus at the beginning 
to being against Jesus at the end. And the crowds have a lot of power. But he's calling out their bad theology, and in doing so, um, that's the other reason I brought up Twitter and Facebook is I see so much bad theology on there. Now, here's, here's the self-proclaimed truth is that I've been, I've been teaching for a long time and I've taught some bad theology in my day. And I learned my theology from other people who taught me. And I pass along bad theology. And, and you might be sitting there going, oh, how do I know what to believe? And what, uh, how do I know what not to believe? And that is the great question. That's the question I want you to ponder. Because not everything I say, I can guarantee is absolute truth. No one can. If you believe everything someone says, you're going to miss something of truth. Because no one has it in their hand and dispenses it as if it's, it's always right. I've had to repent of some things that I taught. It wasn't long ago, Lori and I had visited with some friends of ours, and, and they were part of our church uh, long ago. And uh, just hearing them talk, I heard some of my bad theology come right back at me. And it was like, oh. And I, and I find myself at that time thinking I was, I was much younger, much more naive, and much more absolute in my thinking. And as I've gotten older, I've realized, oh, man, I should have held that with open hands because I could have been wrong. So for you, for me, as we learn and as we grow and as we journey together, this is the reason why we do questions. This is why it's okay for you to disagree with us. This is why it's okay for you to go, yeah, but there's another way to see that. We get that. We fully understand the fact that you can see it another way. For us to say that we have the absolute truth is arrogance. Because we could sit in the seat of the Sadducees and say, we don't believe, this is just hypothetical, we do believe in the resurrection. But we could say that and find ourselves on the other side of Jesus and him saying, didn't you? Didn't you read? Didn't you know? So he's calling them out, not just for their bad question, but for their bad understanding of God. And really, that's what the study of theology is. The study of theology is to to know God, not to be right. Those are different things. If the goal of your studying of theology is just to be right, you're going to miss God going to miss them all together. Because to know God is to be in a relationship. And to be in a relationship requires there to be this unfolding, getting to know peace. And over my years of, of knowing Jesus, he's been very patient, very kind, very prompting. The Holy Spirit has convicted me of things. My life has changed dramatically over the last 30 years. And I'm very thankful that I can hold with open hands. There's, I, I want you to know, Jesus, the true and living God of the universe. 
Not my version of him. Not Mike Erie's version of him or Susie Lynn's version of him or our version of him. But the true one, the true version. And you're sitting there going again, what does that look like? I think there's more to it than we realize in this idea of what is spelled out here. And I just, I do know this, that he's kind and he's patient, he's loving, he's inclusive, and and he is welcoming to all people at the table. And this is where we go next. Okay, so he, he knocks three of them off, the Herodians, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and then we get to verse 28. And he says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all of the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. Well, he's applauding God for answering well. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no, no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbors as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then, then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus sums up the law with those two commandments. Sums it up. He doesn't, he just says, you know, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love others as yourself. And, and you can't separate those two. If you want to know what it is that is to follow Jesus, it's to love him and love other people. It's not real complicated, but it is real complicated. We make it complicated by exclusion. We, we build fences to make sure that certain people we don't have to love. We don't have to love our neighbor if our neighbor is unlovable, if we can build a fence that makes them and keeps them at bay. But as, as we engage with God, as our theology engages with God, if our theology is not continually moving to a place where we begin to understand that loving God with our heart, soul, mind, our whole being, our whole personhood, okay, takes us back to the image of God thing. It's the, the people are given over to God. It's, it's the people that are the currency of the kingdom of God. It is the people who love God, who in turn then love one another. You want to know how you're doing at loving God. How are you doing at loving people? That's the question, and in the inverse is true. If you're lousy at loving people, you probably are not really loving God real well because God is inviting you into a relationship that says, the theology about me is this, is I created you, I put my imprint upon you, I love you, I died for you, all those things are true. I wanna be in relationship with you, we walk together, we grow together, we do this as a community, all those things are true. And then in turn, you love what I love. That's what he says. You love what I love. And what he loves is you, is people. And if you find yourself constantly saying, man, I'd love church except for the people. Yeah, I'm not sure you met God yet. I'm not sure you met Jesus yet. 
because Jesus is the ultimate theology. He's the perfect representation of God the Father. Perfect representation. And we just want to orientate us to following that Jesus. And the more that we love each other, the more the evidence comes up. Oh, we're beginning to get who Jesus is. And the less barriers we put between people being a part of a community like this, the more we're getting, oh, we're following Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. I know, cliche. But to love Jesus is to be like him. And to love his people is evidence that we love him. There, you can't pull them apart and get it. And he continues now. He goes, um, uh, he makes this, I'm going to jump down to verse 38. Okay? Um, he makes this scathing judgment now of the, of the teachers and the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is what he says. As he taught, Jesus said, Listen to this. Watch out for the teachers of the law because we start to see the evidence of their love. He doesn't say that, but this is, this is part of what you're seeing and hearing in these passages. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, not just the temple, but in the marketplaces, and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Part of, part of the dilemma of this is to understand the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, and that really the way that the religious leaders were supposed to be operating was in this place of servanthood, was in this place of, of being... Um, power under rather than power over. And they wanted the seat of power. They wanted the seat of being recognized. They wanted platforms of great influence. They wanted those things and they pursued them and they, they walked around with flowing robes and meaning, look at me, how important I am. And, and they wanted that position, not realizing that what they were actually doing was eroding away. The very thing they wanted was for God to be the shepherd of his people. For us, as, as humans, we gravitate towards power. We gravitate towards platforms. We gravitate towards influence. I, this, this whole thing, I, building platforms of influence has been going on forever, forever, since there has been people. Now we just happen to do it online, which I, I find amazing and funny and all kinds of things. I probably shouldn't see it as funny. I just don't understand why people are getting, you know, parenting advice from 25-year-olds who've never had kids. Lord help us. It's bad enough when you're 50 and have had kids and you're still trying to figure out how to raise kids. It, but it, building a platform based upon the ability to be able to attract an anonymous crowd of people so that we might influence them. Here is, here is the ultimate indictment of the religious leaders of the day who had built platforms and show the evidence of their lack of understanding of the kingdom of God because they choose 
to pursue positions of influence, power, at, at the expense of the people around them. I'm not saying that everybody on platforms does that, but here's, here's just a quick warning as a pastor, is that pastors abuse this all the time. And I would, I would say that then if, uh, not that we're special in any way, we're just, just as gullible and human as everybody else, but it's happening everywhere else. And if you are building a platform, great. Build a platform, but use it wisely. Use it wisely. Influence matters. It really does. So um, I don't know what your influences are, but know that it matters, whether it's online or in person. So with that being said, it takes us to one last passage of Scripture, and I'll get through this one pretty quick, I hope. Uh, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. This is really important. This is going to, I need to qualify this because this, this is often taken out of context. Jesus sat down opposite the place, so he sat in a place where he could observe people bringing their offerings to the temple. And so he, and this clearly indicates a place of judgment. He's, he's put himself in a place to see and judge. But it, it's, be careful. He's saying, he's not talking about the people, he's not judging the people putting their money in, he's judging the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Okay, this is a callback to the previous where he's talking about the indictment of the, of the religious leaders of the day, showing their lack of concern for the marginalized. Verse 40, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. And so they'll make lengthy prayers, but they, they will devour a widow's house. So the idea of the temple being, or the religious leaders being, for those on the marginalized edges is part of the indictment. So he gets here and he says, he says, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth a few cents. 43, calling his disciples to himself, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Okay. Um, the struggle for what was taking place was to understand how the treasury temple worked for Jewish people was it was a tax, basically. You gave because you were obligated to give out of, out of the law. So you gave 10%, you gave whatever. And, and he is not, in this passage, condemning the rich people. They're doing what they do. If they're doing it for a show, he's saying, yeah, they got their reward. But if they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart, fine. It is part of giving to the temple. But the temple tax or the temple treasury was what he was looking back and condemning because who was in control of the temple treasury? The religious leaders of the day. And they're willing to crush a widow's house and they're willing to take the last two cents of a widow's. Now, we may sit here and think, well, widow. No, widows were marginalized in the worst way in this culture. They had no covering. In a misogynistic environment like that, they had no rights, they had nothing. Now this speaks to her faith, no doubt about it. 
and I don't want to minimize her faith, but what I want you to know is that Jesus was judging not the woman and not the rich man. He was judging the temple treasury and how it was governed. Because they were willing to take the last two cents from a widow. That's that's his ultimate indictment of this crew, of, of the religious leaders. And, and this, is, this is the sad part, and I'm going to open this up for questions in just a second, is that oftentimes me, myself, in the past, have taken that paragraph of Scripture and used it for giving. That isn't the point of this passage. The point of this passage is, do you as a community have compassion for the people on the margins? Somebody asked me after the, the first gathering and said, hey, does that mean you don't believe in tithing? I said, I, tithing is an Old Testament principle that was put into place to support the, the temple. The New Testament principles that keep coming up in the New Testament are generosity. I've talked to people my whole life as a pastor, and they've come to me and said, hey, I can't afford to tithe. And my answer to that question is don't. Give what you can. If you can't give anything, don't give anything. But ultimately, get yourself out of, the, out, of the, out of the financial issue you're in so you can be more generous. That's the answer to the question. It isn't, God doesn't determine a blessing upon you based upon whether you give 10% of your income or 5% of your income or 40% of your income. We have tried to make a very strong principle of this is that we give because we're combating something in our culture that's consumerism. I can keep and hoard everything for myself, or I can be generous with it and give it away. You'll find freedom in giving it away. You won't find freedom in hoarding it. You'll just find ways to protect it. So I want to invite you into that. I, I want to invite you into a conversation, too. Um, did I spark something that causes you a question or do you have a concern about something I just said? I get, we have a few minutes, just a few minutes for questions. Susie's got a microphone. Over here. <laughs> so I have actually a multitude of questions. Okay. Some, some are short. Should I sit down? <laughs> no, you're good. Okay. Uh, what's the timeline between all of these interactions with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians and Jesus? Yeah, it's not real clear, but it, it could have all happened in a, probably the same day. I think they were trying to line them up and catch them in those moments, but some people thought it was over two days. Why the last teacher coming to him with something that's different than what we experienced in the beginning? Mm-hmm. Uh, like contextually, wh why did Mark include that part? And was there other questions that were asked of Jesus that aren't included in Mark's text? Okay, don't know about the, if there's more questions. Do you mean the guy that asked what are the greatest commandments? Yeah, that question was asked of him in, in other places as well because he was trying to, he, they knew that he knew the answer. This, the guy that asked the question thought he knew the answer and expected Jesus to answer differently and to engage in him in a debate. But Jesus answered the question the way that he didn't expect. So there's a, 
that, again, this was trying to catch him in something. And it's hard to catch him in something if you answer the question in the way that it's supposed to be answered. So it defeated his, his attempts to argue with him. I, the way that I heard that, right, mm -hmm. was that he liked what Jesus was saying and mm -hmm. he wanted to ask a good question, sure. not trap him. Uh -huh. At least Mark doesn't say specifically, right, he came right. over to trap him. Right. So that felt different than it the did, previous. It feels different, yeah. yes. So that's why I was trying to understand, like, why is Mark including this contextually in that the, the argument is he was still trying to catch him in something because he would be considered part of that religious leaders of the day. But he also commends. He's the only one he commends. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And then after that, they, like right after that, is they didn't dare to ask him any more questions. So it was still had that meaty um, kind of air about it. They weren't all bad guys, right? As individuals, like the Pharisees, Sadducees, they weren't all, every single one of them. No, they weren't corrupt. But there's this, but is this, there's the powers that were behind it. And then we've talked about this, principalities and different things. And they were, and many of those, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the teachers of law were trying to protect the people. They thought, they believed they were trying to protect the people um, from falseness or from being led astray. The, the Thrustons have a lot of questions. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> hogging the microphone. Um, so, like, a lot of times, my, my how I experience reading the New Testament and how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees yeah. is he's very, like, sarcastic and trying <laughs> to, like, make them look dumb. It, that's how I read yeah. it anyways. Sure. And, like, when we talk about inclusivity and, like, Jesus trying to bring the marginalized in and like he's inclusive so that doesn't just mean the people who are pushed out but that means everybody correct and so i guess i'm just curious what like how you read it and if you see it a different way or like why is he so disrespectful to them it seems i think he's very frustrated with them they are to be the he they were um in the in the parable they were entrusted with the vineyard um and they they wanted to keep the vineyard for themselves. They didn't want to give the vineyard to God. They wanted to keep it for themselves. And in keeping it to themselves, they were willing to not listen to God anymore and actually, actually go as far as, you know, the prophets, they discounted the prophets, they killed the prophets, and then Jesus comes and you know the story. But so his frustration is, come on, move with me. And it's more of a, it's, it's more combative with them because they're more combative with him. And they don't see him as he really is. And that's part of the problem. And so I would say um, he has his harshest judgment for them, clearly. Calls them whitewashed tombs. I mean, it's, it's the harshest. And it's a, it's a sweeping indictment. And part of what's going on there is the power behind that is, is dark the power behind it, he's up against, because ultimately it is a dark power that crucifies Christ. It's, it's not people, it's this, it's, it's the principalities that he's up against, but he ultimately obviously defeats them. But there's this, that's what's going on there. The other thing that, don't miss this, John 3.16, if you read John, um, the, the, uh, the most common verse is spoken to a Pharisee who comes to him at night. Nicodemus, and so some of them were hearing and more curious and would come to him 
when the crowds weren't around and when the other Pharisees weren't around and they would come to him at night and talk to him, I'm sure Nicodemus wasn't the only one. And so it did spur curiosity for some. I don't know if that's satisfying, but we'll... Just tagging into that same thought, yeah. uh, is there a historical, rather than right religious and, and uh, theological issues there, is there historical reasons that the leaders of the day would want to, um, and I'm trying to put this in context of now, oh, right? okay. of, of understanding, like, was there a, a struggle and control and a, and a power that they wanted to hold on to, to per, quote, unquote, protect, right? Uh, the people of the day yeah. from a civil war, from right, yeah. Roman history, was yeah. that playing into some of it? Some of their decisions sure. and leadership. Yeah, most people would say that that played into it, and other people would say that what played into it is they wanted to keep their positions of power. So they had roles that they played. They had the favor of the people in some regard. They had positions where they wanted to keep them, and that's what Jesus is talking about more here at the end of that passage where they where he indicts them as they would they would walk around in their robes they would sit in the seats of of honor at banquets and they would also uh, destroy a widow's house and so it's all the evidence of of something other than the kingdom of god and so i would say both of those things are true and they can be at the same time yeah all right we probably need to put a bow on this unless those are great questions, by the way. Thank you. Um, ask the band to come up. Uh, I'd like to direct you, if you're, if you're kind of new, I know questions in a minute. Sorry about that. Uh, but we have four stations that are positioned around the room, and in each one of them is an opportunity for you to do uh, three things. Uh, you, can, you can give there. There's give boxes. There's communion. The uh, bread is... It's gluten-free, and so and there's grape juice there, and and you can take communion, and there's a place to write prayer requests. We we pray over the prayers every, uh, every Tuesday as a staff, and we just invite you get up and move around. The first part of this back half of the will be instrumental, so there will be no words. So feel free to move around during them, and uh, let me pray as we move into that part of our gathering. Lord, thanks for this time. Thank you for reminding us over and over again of your deep love for us, um, that we are, we are called to love you, uh, love each other. Pray that as we just contemplate what it is that you did for us and, and how you uh, provided a way, we are forever grateful. And as we take communion, may we be reminded of your, your sacrifice. And Lord, we give this time to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.